innovation is dismissive of the past and the present. It chases after things that are in the future, and uh, I think that does a real disservice to the fact that the present is built on a whole lot of moments. And what we do has value. Uh, it's incredibly important work. However, there's got to be ways that we can repurpose some of our pre-existing practices and infrastructure and roles to start edging in that direction. I think if people are finding innovation easy, they're not doing innovation. Welcome to Good For All. I'm Monique Nelson. Good For All is a podcast by Possibilities, a not-for-profit association that offers community living support services to persons with developmental disabilities and their families. On the podcast, we share stories about disability, community, and inclusion, and invite you to join us as we work toward our vision of good and full lives for all. For our first episode, we're going to explore that vision. What do we mean when we say good and full lives, and how do we get there? Let's jump back a few decades and start with a look at where we've been. In the 1950s and 60s, the community living movement was growing across North America. At that time, people with developmental disabilities were placed in institutions and segregated from the rest of society. The community living movement argued that with community services and supports, people with disabilities could live and participate in their own communities as full citizens. That shift toward community living has evolved over the past several decades. Here in British Columbia, all of those large institutions were closed by the mid-90s. But the work to create inclusive and socially connected communities continues. Big challenges require creativity and a willingness to challenge our assumptions. You could call this an innovation mindset. It's one of the things guiding our journey. I'm here with producer Alicia Neptune, who spoke to Possibilities Director of Innovation, Gord Tullock. Tell us a bit about your conversation, Alicia. Well, I think the first thing that people should know about Gord is that he's a big picture thinker, and that makes him a good fit for Director of Innovation. His role is to think about what's next for social services. At Possibilities, we're focused on people with developmental disabilities. So he spends time thinking about how we do what we do, how we offer support. And he also works to develop new projects that go beyond meeting people's basic needs and get folks involved in community. It's a big job. Innovation always is. And we'll get into all that. But the first thing that he and I talked about was how he got his start in this field. When Gord moved to British Columbia in the early 90s, he didn't have a plan. It was a spur-of-the-moment thing. He had studied philosophy, and he got a job teaching a philosophy course, but didn't earn enough to live on. So he started bartending. And when he still couldn't make ends meet as a philosophy instructor slash bartender, he started looking at job ads. And that's when he found his first role working with people with intellectual disabilities. Here's the story of that first experience. I showed up at a bungalow house, knocked on the door, and a supervisor answered it and called out to John to come meet Gord. And John 
came around the corner and he was big. He was like six foot three, 275 pounds, bald, and he had a really kind of gruff exterior. And he walked up, he looked like head all the way down to my feet, all the way up to my head again. And then he was Bigfoot, turned around, chuckled and walked back to his room. And I thought at first that, that he didn't like me. I was sensitive that um, already I'd started off the wrong way, but apparently that's sort of just how he was. One of the first things I learned about John was that John lies a lot. Anytime John started to tell stories that weren't true, I was supposed to stop him and say, now John, did that really happen? And if John said no, then I shall say, okay, John, can you just stick to things that are true? Sure enough, John, uh, in no time, uh, started telling me this story. And all the stories were the same. They were about rescuing people. They were about standing up to bullies, standing up to the police. Uh, they were about riding with a motorcycle gang. Uh, um, and kind of being a, an everyday hero. And he'd start into something, and I remember, you know, I, that first week, once or twice, I think maybe I sort of said, John, John, hold on, John, did that really happen? And he'd sort of say, no, Ghost. Ghost was his name for me every day, for the everyday. And, and so I'd say, okay, John, maybe just let's stick with things that are true. But I think if I did that, I only did it once or twice because... The stories he told, he indwelled them. He took on the voice and intonation of all the different characters, the, the person he was confronting or the person was confronting him, and he would sort of have this exchange back and forth, and he got right into it. And that was, for me, a window into who John was. He was this lonely, um, solitary rebel who saw himself as beaten up by society, but the kind of guy who could beat back. And he could rescue people, he could save women, he could uh, save unfortunate people, he could stand up to bullies, he could stand up to the police who he thought uh, might be sometimes misabusing their power. But for me, anyways, this was a way of getting a little bit of insight into who John was. And it was a really beautiful, uh, he was a beautiful guy. A lot of what I did, a lot of, I think what most of us did with John, I'd say were more kind of activities. He liked to play cards. So we played a lot of cards. We played cribbage, crazy eights, whatever he wanted to play. Uh, we took him to an old folks center where he had a friend and he'd join them for their cards night, you know, on Friday nights. He wanted a life that mattered. Uh, that's what was coming out in his stories. He wanted, to, he wanted to be a force for good and we were playing cards with him instead. And um, that was my first experience. There's one sentence that stands out to me there. A life that mattered. Yeah, that idea came up a lot in our conversation. A life that mattered. A life of meaning. 
And now that idea is part of our mission at Possibilities to assist persons with developmental disabilities to lead meaningful and healthy lives. But then it wasn't reflected in the work Gord was doing in that first experience. Of course, Gord went on to work with folks with disabilities, which is how he ended up with us at Possibilities. But he started to notice these patterns in social services. His interest in philosophy meant that he never let go of that question of meaning. He was always thinking about big issues, but those weren't the conversations people around him were having. A lot of the questions in philosophy that are gripping for me are questions around uh, morality and ethics and existentialism, meaning purpose, personhood, justice, all of these topics that I was grappling with had so much application to this sector, this field, and yet, like, there's so much uniqueness around working in this sector, and it just wasn't pulled into philosophical discourse. There's just so much for me uh, that's ripe for conversation and discussion that can inform not only the really lofty discourses of philosophy, but that we can also draw from philosophy, whether it's particular philosophical frames or critical thinking, and apply it to the everyday practice of our work. For me, and I think for most people, uh, having a life of meaning is pretty critical. It, uh, mattering is uh, pretty critical. Much of the sector focuses on kind of getting, I think, people to a, a basic level of support and increasingly as funds grow tighter, that's exclusive focus. How do we move beyond that to actually supply people with genuine opportunities to live full, good, meaningful lives, whatever that means for them? Uh, often the conversations that we have in, in this sector, in the disability sector, in any social service sector, they're perennial. Uh, you can walk out of a conversation and go to a conference five or ten years later and they're having the same conversation. And uh, the pilots and projects that come out of those conversations, they have the same kind of genetic imprint as the system itself. Like, they're not genuinely disruptively innovative. They might have a little newness or novelty to them. But they borrow from the same assumptions around what the problem is and... Uh, how to solve it, and so increasingly realizing that if we want genuinely new solutions, uh, need to step outside of the echo chamber I was in, and I started reading completely different material, more around uh, community mobilizing, community development, uh, innovation, social finance, started kind of collecting different people in my networks that were more kind of motivated by system change and uh, meaningful system change, not just change for the sake of change, but because we want a better world. I, I gave up my office as well. I uh, felt like I should be in community. Like if that's the, if that's ultimately the destination we're after for all of our lives, including the, the folks we are supporting to be encircled in community, and to be part of community life that I needed to spend more time there. 
You know, as a parent attending some of those conferences, I was a little disheartened in the first few years. I, I've been here about 11 years now, and I would say the first five or so, I was having that same experience as Gord was talking about. We were just sharing the same ideas over and over, but I didn't feel like we were getting this traction um, until more recently, where I really feel like we're, we're hitting a tipping point. And a lot of that is due to Gord's work and the early innovation projects that were largely about relationship building and how more and more doors were opening. Well, there are a lot of big ideas in there. Community mobilizing, community development. All those ideas set him on a path to explore innovation and how we could take an innovative approach to relationship building. So Gord started working on how our staff could help broker relationships between the people we support and people in their own neighborhoods. For 30 years or more, we've been asking the question of how do we connect people with disabilities to community? Um, they're lonely, they're isolated. How do we bridge them to community? In 2012, a report came out from the Vancouver Foundation called Connect and Engaged. When this report came out, it showed or illustrated that, that this isn't just our question. It's the question foremost on the mind of Vancouverites. A lot of people, I think at least a third, were more alone than they wanted to be. Similarly, people were finding it very difficult to make friends or to find friends. And so the realization that this wasn't a disability problem, this was a, a we problem, it was an us problem, it was a community problem, and we'd been trying to solve it at the wrong scale. So we introduced the role of a community connector. They had three jobs in the beginning. The first was to build connective tissue wherever they went. Because what's the point of trying to connect a person with a disability to a neighborhood or community in which there's no social network, no social fabric. If we can grow that fabric, then anyone can get attached to it. And we start building trust and inclusion and resilience. The second piece, of course, was to bridge people to community to help them become more encircled in neighborhoods and communities. The idea being is if employment specialists could connect people to a workplace, not only in terms of a job, but trying to get them embedded in the culture and the so social functioning of those spaces, why couldn't we do in the larger scale in neighborhoods and communities? Why couldn't we find places for people to go and things for them to do and people to do them with? So that was the second piece, uh, was... Um, bridging people to community and the third was to do a series uh, we call them different things at different times do a series of activations or interventions in community that would remind everybody that they didn't occupy just a physical space they occupied a social landscape uh, and to, to give them interactions that would you know bring them a little joy and bolster their uh trust in others and their sense of belonging, that they're part of a bigger social field. So we would do things, little things like we'd have a high-fiving in the, you know, the Burrard station. So people coming off the escalator would get high-fived, you know, it's a small thing, but, or we would have granny in the park and, you know, dressing up as grannies and inviting people to sit down and have tea with us. Uh, or having hot apple cider on a cold day and 
uh, chairs and invitations for people to, you know, have conversations. There'd be prompts for people to have conversations. So, so a series of activations like that. And that's a longer game in terms of changing the sorts of interactions that were occurring in public spaces so that they'd be recalling and remembering that there is a lot of social will and social good out there. And people that are interested in the well-being of others. The work the connectors were doing, it seemed like it had two levels. They were creating small moments of joy, connections between individuals, but they were also working towards this greater cultural shift, changing how people see community. Because it's not that people don't want to be involved, they just want to know how. Yes, yeah. I think one of the things that's happened over the years is that people came out of institutions and then were taken care of by professionals in community living, and we've alienated our neighbors. And that's the very core work that um, Gord and his team are working towards is undoing that view of professionalization and welcoming neighbors to fill those roles of support, because really anyone can be a friend, and we're all vulnerable, and we all need supports at different times in our life. So it's very, um, very important work that he's doing now in the progress of the movement. It's the next phase, the unbundling of all that professionalization. And we, as an organization, can move into that bridging role. That's right. Before the break, we were talking about partnerships and those early activations and things we were doing to start bridging between our employees, persons served, and the communities that they live in. And it really gets me thinking about the greatest experiment that we undertook, which was bringing on board an organization called In With Forward. Uh, they really taught us how to view the world quite differently as cultural ethnographers. Let's have a listen. One of the most significant partnerships with us was with peer organizations who put their pride aside to get real and to get serious around resolving this enduring problem of social disconnection and social isolation for the people we supported. And to really think about how can we be, as organizations, better springboards for people to find a good life in a welcoming community. Inclusion Powell River and Burnaby Association for Community Inclusion and Kinsight were three organizations that came in on the Building Caring Community uh, Connectors. We all hired connectors. So those were really critical uh, partnerships. The ones with Burnaby Association and Kinsight developed further. We formed Degrees of Change, a collective which is three organizations co-investing in research and development ongoing because we recognize that we're stronger together when we can share resources and when we are similarly resolved with a similar kind of vision. Another kind of game-changing partnership was with In With Forward. I'd been wrestling with this problem 
And the problem was around risk. It's the cornerstone to everything. Everything in our system is built on risk. A lot of what we do is around controlling, predicting outcomes. We increasingly refine our processes and our roles and our procedures and our training to ensure that whatever the outcome, even if it's a tepid one or you know, a lukewarm one, at least it's not going to be a bad one. And then we end up with volunteers. I've always uh, had a bit of a challenge around that because we talk about, well, we need volunteers. How do we get people volunteering? Do we need volunteers to take people out for coffee? And like the people in my life aren't volunteers. Volunteering just becomes this quasi-professional workforce. And you have to recruit them. You have to train them. You have to do background checks. I've been wrestling with this problem. You know, you take the, the gift or the offer of community and you neutralize it, you appropriate it. How do we get people to be part of community life? Uh, because we're kind of on the hook if something goes wrong. Like, you didn't do a background check? What do you mean you didn't do a background check? Like, people are vulnerable. So there's this piece where we can't really let people go in the community because uh, we're always on the hook. We're always accountable, and that accountability would be exercised by government or media or whatever the moment something goes wrong. And at the same time, no one's reaching over the fence to pull people into community and sort of say, we'll take this from here. So people seem stuck in these systems. And how do we give people a, a chance at a, a life that uh, is outside of those systems where we're not their surrogates, you know, for families and brothers and sisters and friends and stuff? I ran into Sarah Schulman, who is a principal within With Forward, at a conference in Victoria. In With Forward was this, is this, service design shop. So what they did is they worked with governments internationally throughout the world to come up with new social services. And the way they worked was so different than anything that resembled the way we work. And with Forward uh, came to British Columbia to solve a problem that we had. And the problem that we had was threefold. We asked them, can you, first of all, can you tell us what's going on uh, in the lives of people with disabilities who are isolated? Like, what's going on? What's the lived experience of it? Because at the same time that everyone was sort of saying, hey, we're socially disconnected, no one was really performing social connection. No one was like knocking on their neighbor's door and sort of saying, oh, we got a problem, let's solve it, right? Everyone's still sequestered, everyone's still lonely, we're in these apartments. We want to understand, uh, first of all, uh, what does that look like? What does that taste like? What does that feel like? Like, what's really going on for people in their everyday? How do we engineer interactions between very diverse tenants in a place uh, that brings mutual benefit to both? And then the third part, of course, is how do we manage risk? Like, how do we deal with this? Like, this is this is this keeps haunting us. They moved into a building for three months. Uh, we called it a starter project to do this work. They ran all these kinds of activations and interventions to get to know everyone in the building. They're cultural anthropologists. They're ethnographers. They aren't coming with any preconception of what the problem is. We named it. We think it's an isolation problem. They were like, great. Thanks. Nice to hear it but let's just go and see what people are saying and living and feeling. One piece that still troubles me uh, was when they met with families or with individuals with disabilities or professionals, whatever, 
they had a series of prompts. You know, they try and elicit, well, who are you? What motivates you? What, what do you think, you know, what's, your, what's in your future? Uh, you know, what's... And they try and probe what people's value sets are and uh, all those sorts of things. And when they talk to people with disabilities, not only was it incredibly difficult to elicit anything, because we don't typically have those conversations, right? So people aren't practiced in thinking about who are they? Uh, what do they want out of life? Uh, what's important? What are the values? You know, what makes them excited? What motivates them? So not only are they not practice, but after, you know, I don't know, all these tools and prompts and conversations that they tried, what did bubble up was the language of the sector, the language of dysfunction, deficit. People were spitting back the language of uh, a system that was deficit-based and focused predominantly on what people's needs were. It was a critical partnership because they wanted to make a difference and they didn't want to sort of just be some instrumental tool wielded in our hands that we told to do what and we had, you know, it's like, let's make this an even partnership. And we've been in partnership with them ever since. And it's really transformed the way we think about a lot of things. Because, um, you know, usually when we come up with projects or initiatives, it's a bunch of people in, you know, suits around a boardroom table interpreting what we think the problem is because we've been in the sector for 30 years. We think we know what the problem is and we think we know what the, the solution is. And this was three months of people surfacing completely different problem definitions. I'm curious, Monique, do you remember what it was like when we first started working with In With Forward? Yeah. Yeah, I remember those early days and this uh, bright, shiny, young team <laughs> coming to us and hosting these sort of pop-up workshops. And we'd have all kinds of stickies and prompts and conversations. And it just felt a little different. I mean, they'd be bringing snacks. There'd be orange juice. <laughs> there was this color yellow everywhere. It's just really, really interesting to work with people who come at these challenges that we've been facing from an entirely new perspective. You know, when we first started along this journey working with our partners, we really were quite strategic about that because we could have more influence working together as a regional group than, say, an individual agency going after it on our own. And even in that pattern of partnership, we were creating trailblazing new ground by working collaboratively and then bringing in, in with forward and having these great discoveries, things like the the most painful thing that folks were experiencing was a poverty of experience. They didn't know to ask to do something different than go bowling because nobody had given them the opportunity or supported them to flesh out what their interests would be. That that perspective comes from deep listening to the people we serve was really quite startling in many ways. Yeah, that was one of my takeaways, that In With Forward had a lot of experience listening to people. And it paints a more complex picture of the situation, which made me wonder, even after you take that learning and you try a solution, how do you measure progress? When I asked Gord about it, his answer was that it's complicated. <laughs> Let's have a listen. 
ultimately, all of this stuff is, is around change. We want people to have more opportunities in their lives. We want them to sort of see their potential nourished and performed and as opposed to people sort of just getting through their days and coping and being stable. That's a longer term proposition. And it takes a lot for that to happen. There isn't like a really simple solution that we can sort of say, if we just invest in this one little prototype, we'll solve that. So it's probably going to require a constellation of these prototypes kind of working to, to do that sort of thing, but it's a longer term proposition. That change um, is around people's potential. So that's obviously a longer proposition. Uh, you know, that's not like what happened at the end of the year. It's like, what, what is their, how, do they, how are their lives unfolding? It's um, also a lot of this work is about social change. So the ethos that we inhabit around the social norms and expectations, the social scripts, the social contracts, all of that stuff is the, the water that we swim in. You know, the real solution I think is working at the level of culture, uh, who as a society we are and how we see ourselves and what we think is desirable or undesirable or what's valuable or, un, you know, invaluable. like those sorts of changes and those kinds of cultural currents would change everything. And a lot of what, you know, we're trying to do is a long game around adding interactions and adding impetus uh, to changing those conversations and uh, changing those currents. Uh, one of the things that I, I'm um, is problematic about innovation is that it is really uh, dismissive of the past and the present. It chases after things that are in the future and it has this internal prejudice against what exists. Like, it's not working. Like, we need something new or better or shinier. And uh, I think that does a real disservice to the fact that the present is built on a whole lot of moments that created like the demand for what we have and the need, you know, um, the structures that we have and so on. And what we do has value. Uh, it's incredibly important work and not wanting this false kind of ambivalence about, you know, like that the future is all bright and shiny and where we need to be and the past is something we need to kind of jettison and get away from. There is a bunch of really important stuff in our, you know, in what we do. However, the thought is, if we want to have a vision that is more around people achieving self-realization about a society that is more uh, diverse and inclusive and caring and all those sorts of things, then there's there's got to be ways that we can repurpose some of our pre-existing practices and infrastructure and roles and structures to start edging in that direction. So it's not like we're leaving where we are necessarily. It's about, can we add additional purpose or functionality? It's difficult to measure progress. We have lots of cool things, like I think super cool things, new typologies of prototypes and approaches and rigor and thinking that I think is unmatched 
in a lot of organizations. And I'm really super proud of those. But ultimately, they're supposed to be pointed towards a change. But the change we're after is a really is a longer one, and um, it's hard to draw a line. I think we're doing something pretty cool. I think. I think we're doing something. I think there's something magical about what we're doing and being exposed to that every day and having these amazing people and teams uh, invested in this sort of change and seeing the strength and power of their ability and their soul uh, motivates me. It's, it's every day is a learning day, every day is an exciting day. The work has been incredibly hard, and I, I think if people are finding innovation easy, they're not doing innovation. Probably they're just doing something novel and new and fun that kind of fits um, inside the envelope of things we always do. And that stuff's great. I'm, I'm not against creativity in all its many ways. I'm just sort of saying if you're in the game of system change or kind of really substantive change, it's, um, it's been a grind, but loved it all. And here's the thing. You change the interactions at the bottom, you change everything. You can't draw a straight line and sort of say, well, we changed you know, 1,000 interactions and we'll get a completely new role out of that. But at the same time, strongly believe, and it's a longer game, but if everybody introduced different kinds of interactions, conversations would start changing, perspectives would start changing, the way we thought or the inflection of the work that we did, things would just start changing. And before you know it, we'll be using uh, language differently, we'll be uh, getting excited about different kinds of partnerships, we'd be getting excited about different kinds of practices, but it, it begins in these things that are non-quantifiable, um, and that's these little things, little gestures, little interactions we can do differently. There's so much that comes up for me listening to Gord speaking about those early days and the pride he has in the work that we've done. We sort of entered this exciting world and this uncomfortable world with lots and lots of change. And that change could happen so quickly. Working with In With Forward, there's a whole concept of fail forward, fail quickly, move on, get to the next prototype. So we were working with a new lexicon, learning the language of innovation, learning the tools of innovation, props, um, different learning styles, appealing to the senses. And we've come so far now. And it's just really interesting for me to hear that Gord said how difficult it was in the early days, because I remember that too, but how he loved every minute of it. There's an addictive sense of innovation. Once you really get into it and understand that it's okay to fail, just do it quickly and move on, and that you can get to so much of a better place so much more quickly, um, it really is energizing. So... What did you think? Um, what really stood out for you in Gord's comments today? I loved hearing how energized he was and how optimistic he was about how those small changes add up over time. I think some of the big things I learned about having an innovation mindset were that you can't assume you know the answers. You have to challenge your assumptions. Uh, you have to look for answers outside of your usual circle. And even though it takes time and it's hard, ultimately, we all have the power to do things differently. And when we do things differently, it opens us up to this whole world of possibilities. Those small changes add up over time, 
and they make people's lives better. They can lead to genuine connections and meaningful change, and it points us towards our ultimate goal, which is good and full lives for everyone. I'm going to let Gord have the last word on what good and full lives means to him. The way I kind of look at it is a good life is around, you know, are people connected? Uh, are people healthy? Uh, is there an element of, are people resilient? Do they have income? Those sorts of characteristics. Uh, a full life for me is more around virtue, emotions, meaning, uh, purpose, uh, those sorts of things. And what what troubles me sometimes is that we create such safe environments for people, whereas, you know, in our own lives, the tumult of everything from the, the elation of feeling like, you know, we're on top of something, uh, some game, some something, we're leading it, whatever it is, to feeling like we're worthless, we're, we're not, you know, like the the experiences of vulnerability and shame, but also of joy and learning. That for me is also kind of part of the full life that we're living the, the depth of our moments and of our being. It's a tumultuous ride when we start getting in the province of meaning and purpose. It's, it's messy, it's complicated, and it's, it's a hard ride. And I'm not suggesting we don't need some kind of safety belt sometimes because it's a, it's a ride. But uh, what's a life worth living? You know, it's more than the, the routines of our day. In routine are these myriad moments that do constantly have an offer. If we don't want this moment to be a tedious one or a banal moment, we can choose to take the offer to put the seatbelt on and to kind of go deep in some of these moments. Well, thanks so much for talking to me, Gord. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Good for All from Possibilities. I'm your host, Monique Nelson. You can learn more about our innovation work and everything else we do on our website, www.possibilities.ca. Keep up with the podcast by subscribing to Good for All on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you liked what you heard, share this episode with your family and friends. I hope after listening to Gord's remarks, you'll take some time to think about reaching over the fence, meeting someone new, and helping build that social fabric and resiliency that makes us all stronger. Thanks for joining us.